This is Laura Harris-Hales, and I'm here today with Bruce Van Orden to talk about W.W. Phelps and early Mormonism. Bruce Van Orden received his bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees from Brigham Young University. Bruce is an emeritus professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University. During retirement, Bruce and his wife Karen had a seven-year prison ministry. He has served on LDS Church Curriculum Committees and on the Pioneer Sesquicentennial Committee, Faith in Every Footstep. He's published widely on scriptural and church history themes. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. Bruce has written a biography on W.W. Phelps, aptly titled We'll Sing and We'll Shout, which is available for pre-order now on Amazon and will be in Deseret Bookstores on August 20th. I was able to review a pre-publication copy, and I had the luxury of reading it very slowly, one chapter at a time, and I was very grateful that they were short chapters. They weren't these 60-page chapters. They were like 10 or 12 pages because each page is so full of information. Now, the biography is 500 pages, so we won't be able to cover every topic but we'll try to hit the main ones. Bruce, how long have you been working on this biography? <laughs> it may have started when I uh, began piano playing and learned to uh, play the hymns and, and learned to love those hymns and accompany them in church when I was a boy, not even preteens, and I saw W.W. W. Phelps. As I got into my undergraduate work and studied a lot of church history, I saw Phelps all the time, and then I started to read uh, the official history of the church and ran into him there and saw his story of coming back to the faith and Joseph Smith forgiving him, and I decided, oh, this is somebody I've got to study further, and found out there wasn't really a published biography. Thus, when I began my career in religious education at BYU in 1986, I had been a seminary and institute teacher for 16 years prior to that, but in the publishing arena at BYU, I started in 1986, but... I was so busy doing other things. I got ecclesiastically very busy. I got about 14 chapters in, and then there were other issues that came up, and I pretty much got out of the writing business for a while and retired and then got back about three years ago. So I guess maybe six years total, but a big division in space there. What sources have helped you reconstruct the life of W.W. W. Phelps? Well, the official history certainly was important, and of course I had access to that. But the Joseph Smith Papers has done so much more than providing just the official history, and incidentally found out that uh, Phelps had everything to do with the compiling, writing, publishing, promoting of the official history. But it's the Joseph Smith Papers that have rounded it all out and given better sourcing. So in the past few years, that's been the lifeline to making this really work. 
In fact, as I was reading this biography, I thought it couldn't have been nearly as powerful or informative if you didn't have that crucial information from the Joseph Smith papers. I was told by people who knew that I had started on it earlier. It's good that you waited until these papers came out because it gives it more legitimacy and ties it in with that project. Do you feel the role W.W. Phelps played in the early church has been underplayed? He has been underappreciated, and much more needs to be said. I've gone around and spoken in different places, including in Europe, actually, and asked the question, who is this Brother Phelps? Why is he important? And the answer always is the hymns. That's what people think. There is so much more to him than those hymns and uh, particularly as it ties in with the uh, first 15 years of the history of the church, although he did play a prominent role in the early days of Deseret in Utah. I realized when I started looking at your book that this was more than a biography. This was more about the early church. How can studying the life of W.W. W. Phelps be a window to learning more about Joseph Smith's leadership style, doctrines, and personality? I really believe in putting people into their proper context, and other things that have been written about Phelps haven't always given that context, and I wanted to definitely do that, and thank you for noticing that. I've emphasized that we learn so much more about Joseph Smith. Both the prophet Joseph and William W. Phelps felt that the creation of Zion and establishing a new Jerusalem and establishing a perfect social order that was their objective. It was their mutual objective. And uh, Phelps did as much as he possibly could to fulfill Joseph's prophetic vision. Phelps didn't consider himself a prophet, but he considered himself a right-hand man to help out Joseph Smith in every way he possibly could to see this vision. So uh, we have a lot of correspondence between the two of them from Ohio to Missouri and back when they worked together for a year in Kirtland, Ohio. And then when they were collaborators on putting together the doctrinal construct that comes out of Nauvoo. The two were together so much in promoting the doctrines. A lot of people have said that uh, Parley P. Pratt is the uh, St. Paul of Mormonism, and as time went on, that definitely was the case. His books have remained good sellers, and people read them. Pratt has done to Mormonism what Paul did to Christianity. But in the very early days, Phelps worked with Joseph Smith, and his writings were much more prominent than Pratt's, and then his writings had influence upon Parley also. Introduces to the W.W. who joined the church in 1831. He was born in 1792. He's 14 years older than the prophet Joseph Smith, and in that way he was not unusual. Most of Joseph's significant advisors were older than he was. Anyway, Brother Phelps was born in New Jersey. Uh, his family moved to central New York in the great wave of people moving into Indian lands in New York after the Revolutionary War. Grew up in uh, Cortland County. Phelps was highly self-educated and was very well read and dabbled in all sorts of science and literary activities. He became a linguist. He was verbose. He knew how to write. He knew his vocabulary. He knew how to grammatically put things together far above the people of his era, and it was largely self-prepared. He apprenticed as a printer, and after the War of 1812, entered the printing and publishing business. Uh, a newspaper man had some successes and failures in Cortland, got into political writing with the Anti-Masonic Party, 
It was a prominent editor in Canandaigua, as it turned out, and Canandaigua was in the land of Mormonism. He heard about the publication of the Book of Mormon as soon as any of the discussion was available, went to Palmyra within days after the publication was completed, bought a few copies, took them back to his bookstore in Canandaigua with the Ontario Phoenix newspaper, sold some copies, read the book enthusiastically along with his wife, was converted to it, and tried to somehow mix his feelings about Mormonism with his great quest as a newspaper writer, but that wasn't working, and he ended up being jailed by his businessmen sponsors of his newspaper because they claimed he owed them money, and you could put in jail people who were in debt, even though he wasn't highly in debt, but they did this because of his interest in Mormonism. That convinced him that his true friends probably were with Mormonism. He had met the Prophet Joseph, he had met Sidney Rigdon, a few other Mormons in Canandaigua area. And so as soon as he got out of jail in uh, May of 1831, he gathered his family together and they took off for Kirtland and walked the uh, Ohio Trail for 12 miles to Kirtland, uh, where Joseph was living uh, on the outskirts uh, at the Isaac Morley farm and said, here I am. What would the Lord have me do? Can you give me a revelation? Before we proceed with him joining the church and going to Kirtland and Missouri. Let's just talk about his character okay. a little bit. Wasn't Phelps always considered somewhat strange? Yes. And as I've uh, related with different people who have shown interest in him, it varies from absolute veneration to people who wanted to write about him because they thought he was a real oddball. And he did have eccentricities. He was a firebrand in, in his political writing. Those people whom he opposed, he lashed into, and then they would go back at him. He was seemed to be over-enthusiastic, I guess. He would sing, he would write, and everything was done with over-enthusiasm and sometimes, of course, embellishment. This zeal wasn't unusual in the early church, but there must have been something that set him apart. I have a quote here that you shared from Oliver Huntington, and he was commenting on a discourse Phelps had given in Batavia, New York. Such a discourse of strong meat they never heard in that branch before, but t'was good. I found Phelps was as deceiving at first as any man I ever saw. He knew seemingly everything for a man, and all the learning was his. But at first sight, his looks and motions said he was just two-thirds man only. But there was no end to the knowledge continually poured out by him as well as amusement. People liked him because he was amusing and uh, was a storyteller. Most people in the church accepted him for the way he was. So you've told us about his conversion. W.W. Phelps was involved in establishing Zion from the earliest stages. What did that entail in the early years? Once they got to Zion in their initial visit, Joseph Smith received a series of revelations. Phelps was in those revelations. He was called to be the printer unto the church and to write the doctrines of the church and was assigned in that first visit, to obtain a printing press. And therefore, on the return trip to Kirtland, he and Sidney Gilbert 
in their respective requirements, went to Cincinnati and case of Gilbert looked for goods for his store. But in the case of Phelps, he looked for a printing press and he established one that he would want to buy with church funds. And then in leading a group back to Missouri in late 1831, they arrived in early 1832, he purchased this printing press that was to be used to print all of the material that the church ever wanted. No longer would we have to go to someone else to print our material. He would be the publisher. He would be the printer. And he established a company, which was church-owned, W.W. Phelps and Company. And with this printing press, biggest project was to print all the revelations of Joseph Smith in a compilation called A Book of Commandments, but also to print two different newspapers, one for the distribution among church members all over, and then one that would be localized for the people in Jackson County, a secular newspaper. This revelation talked about a literary firm. What was that? It was part of the uh, overall law of consecration and stewardship, and it was a subdivision of it, the literary firm, and it had to do with the products that uh, would come out of W.W. Phelps and Company. The revelations, there would be a possible republication of the Book of Mormon, the newspapers, and it was decided also that they would print uh, a hymn book and an almanac, and those would be done under Phelps' supervision as well. Who else was named as part of the literary firm? All the close associates of Joseph Smith, those he had taken on as his major advisors at the time, Sidney Rigdon, Frederick G. Williams, Martin Harris, who was uh, more of the financial benefactor, and the ones who stood at uh, Phelps's side in the publishing business in Jackson County, Oliver Cowdery and John Whitmer. W.W. Phelps goes to Missouri. He gets the press, but he doesn't have paper, which sounds silly to us. But Missouri was the frontier. It wasn't like they could just go to office back since they had like a couple reams of paper. So what did Phelps, Cowdery, and Whitmer, who were all in Missouri that first winter, do to keep themselves busy while they were waiting for supplies? They did ask for supplies, and they were obtained with church monies on a return trip that Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, and Frederick G. Williams and Noel K. Whitney made to Missouri in the spring of 1832. But they kept themselves busy because they did have type with a printing press, and they laid out the type for the revelations, probably half of them, knowing that they would print them in due time. This was the Book of Commandments. Yes. And so the revisions to the revelations were being done by Phelps, Cowdery, and Whitmer then? They were charged to do that very thing, to edit as necessary. And Whitmer, by the way, had uh, recorded in the revelatory book in the first place, the revelations. And they took this book with them when they got to Missouri and used that book, but they would make the necessarily few editorial changes to the revelations. I was interested in your discussion on Phelps' involvement with the hymnal, because we typically think that this was Emma's hymnal because of DNC 25. But the way you described it, Phelps had quite a bit to do with this first hymnal. Emma Smith was charged to make a sacred collection of hymns, and she took them from existing Protestant writers. And she sent a few of them by mail, I guess, also with Joseph Smith himself when he came in April of 1832. 
it looks like there were no more than a total of 25 that she contributed. Phelps was assigned in that visit of Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, Newell K. Whitney, and Frederick G. Williams to compile the hymn book using whatever Emma had done. Well, he got really enthusiastic and started to write his own and made adaptions of other Protestant ones. They were planning to, of course, make a hymnal, but the Jackson County difficulties with the vigilantes came up in the summer of 1833 that stopped all publication. But when uh, the hymnal was finally completed in 1835 and 1836 in Kirtland, it was Phelps who did all of the labor and the printers under him. And of the first 90 hymns that came out, he wrote 25 of those all by himself and adapted another 32. So way over half of all those 90 had his solid imprint. I found it interesting that in his adaptation process, he took the words and changed them so that they would reflect restoration theology at Absolutely. that point in time. And Enoch, for sure. Enoch was a prominent figure in all of those hymns. What leadership position did Phelps hold in Missouri? He was ordained a high priest before he went to Missouri the second time. It was decided by a council of high priests in Jackson County that those who were assigned to the temporal and publishing affairs would be the presiding high priests in Missouri. And this was done with the approbation and direction of the group of high priests in Ohio at the same time. So there were seven prominent high priests up to 1833 when the insurrection by the Jackson County people took place. Were his job duties laid out clearly, or was it just kind of figure out as you go? Well, it had to be figured out as you go, but they did have uh, constant correspondence by letters uh, with the high priest leadership in Ohio. And we sometimes think of Joseph Smith having a first presidency all along. Well, he didn't. Gradually, he did establish a first presidency, but even after that was done in 1833, which is the same year of the insurrection, it was still a council of high priests. And so they communicated with each other. Well, Phelps being the most literate among the high priests in Missouri was the one who would write the letters back. And when they wrote to Missouri, they would put his name at the head of it. It looks like spiritual affairs were largely presided over by Phelps, Cowdery, and Whitmer, and the uh, secular affairs by the, the Bishop Brick, uh, presided over by Edward Partridge. Things turned sour in Jackson County pretty quickly. W.W. W. Phelps gets the brunt of the blame for this because he wrote an article that the Missourians found inflammatory. Would you say that would be the major thing that set off the Missourians? All the Latter-day Saints, including the prominent ones who would speak at the Sabbath meetings, had to do with this irreversible conflict between the uh, original inhabitants of Jackson County and the Mormons. They differed on everything. How to deal with Indians, the slavery question, the economic exclusiveness of the Mormons, the political power that the Mormons would get by having mere population increase. Everything was different. They were different culturally, especially. Phelps, of course, was prominent because he published and he was a writer. And many of his writings about establishing Zion in that area at the exclusion of other people who would be destroyed had something to do with it. But many other people spoke and actually, we have uh, reminiscences of a few contemporary observers who said it was the 
inflammatory speeches that had as much to do with it as anything else. Run through what happened in Jackson County briefly and the aftermath. You mentioned an article it had to do with people of color, and it was misinterpreted by the local citizens. They thought that Phelps was inviting people of color to come to Missouri who had already been freed, and that the Mormons would also try to proselytize the Negroes. That was really not his intention. And so he tried to put out another extra of the newspaper explaining himself, but it was too late. It appears that it was more of a pretext for the people who to get rid of us. They didn't like us. They didn't want to have us gain political power. And so the pretext was used that we were trying to stir up the slaves when we had really done nothing to stir up the few slaves that did exist in Jackson County. There weren't that many in the first place. So most know about the tar and feathering, the burning of the printing office. The that was destroyed, uh, destroyed on July 25th, 1833. And they uh, they rushed over the 100 yards or so it was from the courthouse to his printing office and did everything they could to stop all publication. They threw the prints of the uh, Book of Commandments and everything else and, and lit fire to them. Only a few pages were enough to put together copies of the Book of Commandments later on, but most of the uh, printed pages were destroyed in the process. The Missouri Saints are in pretty bad shape here, and we know that Zion's camp was organized, sent out there, not successful in redeeming Zion for them. W. W. Phelps and his family have no source of income. They're homeless, like many others, seeking refuge. Where did they go? The Saints scattered uh, every which way, north, south, east, and west. More than half, however, went north across the Missouri River into Clay County, Liberty being the uh, one major community there. And uh, Phelps and his family settled in Liberty. They received a warm welcome, and therefore the Saints who had gone in other directions gradually made their way to Clay County because they were made welcome there and given employment opportunities. Most of the saints started to engage in agriculture or beekeeping and hired labor for the folks in, who had already lived in Clay County. Uh, so they got by. It was not an easy existence, but they got by. I'm reading your book, and I'm like, I don't know how these people just don't die <laughs> of starvation and exposure. It's just amazing that they even survived. I think so, too. And it was because of the uh, kindness of the people who allowed them to be fed and sheltered. That's the reason we wore out our welcome in Clay County as time went on, but the people were very kind to us at the beginning. W.W. begins an interesting part of his life right now. He ends up in Kirtland without his family. How did that happen? Well, let me first say that at Zion's camp, uh, Joseph Smith arrived and decided to establish a presidency in Missouri to correspond with the presidency that existed in Ohio, and therefore we had two church presidencies. This is not widely understood presently. There's a presidency in Ohio, a presidency in Missouri, pretty much equal to each other, although Joseph Smith was considered the presiding high priest over the whole thing and was the seer and the revelator. Many brethren from that presidency and the high council and the bishopric that had been firmly established at the end of Zion's camp in Missouri were invited then by Revelation section 105, to uh, go to Kirtland as the temple was being completed. It was called the House of the Lord, more than a temple. And there they would receive their endowment of power from on high. And Phelps eventually went. He 
was accompanied by John Whitmer. They arrived in late May 1835 and stayed until early April 1836, so it's 11 months or so. And this was a flowering period of productivity for the church as they prepared for the temple and, of course, for Phelps himself. Tell us about his involvement in the translation of the Book of Abraham papyri. He has everything to do with the Book of Abraham. That's not an understatement. He lived at Joseph Smith's house, so he knew what was going on every step of the way, even after the work was done at night. He, along with the other leading brethren, had heard of this Michael Chandler, who was going about, and he was in Cleveland in late May, early June, showing his papyri and his mummies. They had heard about his adventures around the country, displaying these artifacts. I don't know if they had anything to do with inviting him over to Kirtland directly, but in any event, he decided to go over because he heard of Joseph Smith's interest in ancient things. And as soon as he arrived, Phelps wrote to his wife, and we have a whole series of letters that he wrote to his wife, and that's a basic historical source. And he tells of the arrival of this Michael Chandler and selling these papyri and then the mummies and for a good hefty amount of money. And that Joseph Smith immediately recognized that there were ancient revelations connected with these papyries from the book of Abraham and then a book of Joseph. This was an immediate thing that was written down by Phelps in a letter to his wife. And then within just a few days after obtaining these papyri, Joseph Smith enlisted two of his closest scribes, and Phelps was serving as a scribe. The two were Oliver Cowdery and W.W. W. Phelps to be his scribes with this new manuscript, and they worked on it throughout the month of July where they could, but then things got too busy, and they, as a group, did not work on it again until October. But somewhere along the line, Phelps worked somewhat independently, it appears, in creating an alphabet and a grammar of the Egyptian language. Why do you think he was working independently? Well, he felt that he had a go-ahead to do this, but Joseph was busy doing so many other things. He was traveling and conducting other kinds of business, and it had actually started with Joseph and Oliver. They were convinced that the hieroglyphics on the papyri represented the teachings and writings of Abraham, perhaps even in his, with his own hand, it appears. And so Phelps took these hieroglyphic symbols lined them up from top to bottom on a piece of paper, and then gave his interpretation of their meaning that he either had obtained himself or in harmony with Joseph and Oliver, and therefore he has some kind of an identification into the English language of these hieroglyphic symbols. And we now call those papers the uh, grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language, G-A-E-L for short. There's no indication that this is some kind of revelatory document by Joseph Smith. They were never canonized and made public. Therefore, they were not ever identified as revelation or the official word of the Lord. However, when you actually look at some of these documents, the actual language from the Book of Abraham is off on the right-hand side, supposedly to correspond with hieroglyphics on the left-hand side. And so in the mind of Joseph, Oliver, and W.W. W. Phelps, perhaps these were considered revelatory documents. It, it is highly controversial in the whole subject of the Book of Abraham. You make quite a strong assertion in your book. You say that W.W. W. Phelps' probably most important contribution to the Book of Abraham was writing the preface, which has interesting implications. How did you come to that conclusion? 
this preface that we have in our Book of Abraham, even to the present day, the current up-to-date editions, has this simple preface, a translation of some ancient records that have fallen into our hands from the catacombs of Egypt, the writings of Abraham while he was in Egypt, called the Book of Abraham, written by his own hand upon papyrus, unquote. Those are the words that apparently were placed into this manuscript when it was published officially in the Times and Seasons in Nauvoo in March of 1842, many years later. We now can look back upon those original manuscripts that were working manuscripts for the Book of Abraham back in Kirtland in 1835, and in the handwriting of Phelps, we have essentially this preface. So I've come to the conclusion, and others of my colleagues the same, that Phelps is the one who put that in, in the beginning, even in the publication form, because he was the main editor and producer of the uh, Times and Seasons when the Book of Abraham was published. And that preface has contributed to the confusion having to do with the Book of Abraham on many sides of the debate. Back in uh, the early 1980s, when I was working in the church office building as a curriculum writer for seminaries and institutes, and it was now becoming so obvious that the uh, Book of Abraham as we have it is not a translation, cannot be, from the Book of Breathings, Book of the Dead manuscripts of the Joseph Smith papyri that were rediscovered in 1967 in New York City. They don't have correlation in most ways. And I uh, would discuss this with some of my colleagues, and then they would pull out this preface and say, well, here we have it, right in our scriptures, that Abraham wrote this by his own hand. It says it right here. So you can see that that has caused that kind of a conflict. Yeah, it's been a stumbling block for me when I've discussed the topic with people as well. They take that preface very seriously. And I consider it a Phelpsian. A Phelpsian thing. This book of Abraham continued to influence the writings of W.W. Phelps throughout his tenure as a printer for the church. Where do we see these book of Abraham references popping up? Primarily in the Times and Seasons, but then in the Desert News and in the Desert Almanac, those latter two appearing in Salt Lake City in the 1850s and early 1860s. Kolob, as we know, comes out of the book of Abraham, that word, and the phrase and the meaning. Well, he latched onto Kolob and referred to it again and again in his writings. Phelps finally returns to Missouri and is reunited with his family. He's once again in a leadership position. He's in the presidency of the Church of Missouri, which is somewhat confusing for the members of the presidency of Missouri. We have to remember that this is an upstart church, and they're probably modeling their leadership on what other Protestant congregations have done in the past, which leads to a lot of confusion about autonomy. What are some of the things that the Missouri presidency clashed with Kirtland over? It started right away in 1832. Apparently, there were major disputes between Edward Partridge and Sidney Rigdon where they had accused each other of trying to have too much authority, and they left each other on really harsh terms. 
And then other brethren in Missouri also complained about what Joseph Smith and the high priest were doing in Ohio. They thought that, well, if this is Zion, the the Lord's place, then you all ought to come here and be with us as soon as you can. And so they complained about that, and Revelations actually followed in the offshoot of that, proclaiming Joseph Smith as having the full authority over the entire church. And this was accepted, but even with that acceptance, the church presidency in Missouri was held on a very high plane. And even during that 1835-1836 period when Phelps and the other Missouri leaders were in Kirtland, there was complete deference given to the Missouri Church Presidency and the Missouri Bishopric, and it actually it was a council of presidents that led the church in that period, and that council concluded the three presidents out of Missouri. Thus, when Phelps and John Whitmer went back to Missouri, they reassumed their leadership of the church in Missouri, and they found they had to do right away was to leave Clay County and find another place of residence, and it was the bishopric and the presidency who decided that it would be in this sparsely populated area on Shoal Creek that became far west in Caldwell County. And it's not like they could shoot off an email, how about we do this or that. They could write a letter, but it took a long turnaround time. Sometimes decisions... I would say two months turnaround time. Yeah, that's too long sometimes mm -hmm. when they're trying to find shelter yes. for these displaced saints. And they found a really good place. It's acknowledged historically what a good deal that was. And Phelps named the place Far West. It was actually uh, Donovan, who was a representative in the Missouri State Legislature, who helped call it Caldwell County. But uh, a very good place, as it turned out. One of the values of this biography is how you cover the period from 1834 to 1838 that has in the past been seen as, you know, this marker, this speech, this marker, this happened, a few seminal events, and you fill in the gaps, and it makes so much more sense on why certain people behaved in certain ways. And, how and it was still a young people's church and a new church. So mistakes were made by many people. Yeah, and how it unfolded. The power structure in Missouri was never really settled. There were factions vying for power, and there was a coup. And as briefly as you can, with still covering the topic, can you try to take us through how W.W. goes from being one of Joseph's closest confidants in 1835 to being excommunicated in 1838. It has to do with the uh, structural organizational plan of the church, as well as many other things. The Quorum of the Twelve was called in 1835 in Ohio, and they went out on missions, as was their assignment. They were to take the gospel to all the world. They were told that they had no authority where there was a presidency and a high council. There was a presidency and a high council in Ohio. There was the presidency, including Phelps, uh, and two Whitmer brothers in Missouri and a high council. And the 12 was not to have any authority in those places. It turns out, though, in reality, that uh, members of the 12 served temporarily on high council cases, if they were needed, in Ohio and then in Missouri. When Phelps uh, and John Whitmer went back to Missouri, they had 
various reasons for the High Council to come together to help make decisions. And Thomas Marsh, who is the senior president of the 12, and a resident of Missouri most of the time, came to live back in Missouri himself and served on the High Council temporarily uh, or as an ad hoc member. And he was assigned to go by the High Council and the presidency to Kentucky and Tennessee and obtain money to help care for the Latter-day Saints and poor bleeding Zion, they called it. And you had mentioned how much suffering they were going through. Marsh went to Kentucky and Tennessee, tied up with his good friend of the Twelve, David Patton. The money was obtained by Marsh and Patton and Elisha Groves, to make sure his name is in there. They came back to Missouri had to turn the money over to the presidency, which were uh, W.W. Phelps and John Whitmer. This money was used to buy more property to establish the city of Far West. And Phelps and John Whitmer were acting unilaterally and making all those decisions, not unlike what Joseph Smith was doing back in Ohio in his decisions. But they failed to bring in the Bishop Brick and the High Council sufficiently. And uh, Marsh wanted more authority anyway, and he figured that since he was a member of the Twelve, he ought to have it. Uh, so he established uh, a group of people, about four of them, David Patton himself and a couple of members of the High Council, and they did everything they could to undermine Phelps and Whitmer, and they insisted that these guys turn the monies and the running of the financial part of the church over to the bishopric again, which they did, and so that was uh, supposedly kind of settled, but the animosity continued, Marsh had spent a, a few months uh, in that same period, along with Patton, and going to Kirtland and working with the Twelve and making some decisions together. And many members of the Twelve were falling away at that time, as this was the great apostasy in Kirtland over financial things primarily. And Marsh ingratiated himself with Joseph Smith as one who was so loyal, he was not, he was not going to fall away like some of the others. And Joseph believed, okay, he, he's helping, we'll, we'll trust him. And Marsh went back and in his communication with Joseph Smith said that the same spirit of apostasy exists here in Missouri. And he worked it out, not according to official church practice by revelation, but he arranged for courts to be held against the, the presidency. And they were taken out of their role as the presidency of the church in Missouri. And W.W. W. Phelps and John Whitmer also excommunicated in March of 1838 with Thomas Marsh and David Patton fully realizing that Joseph Smith was on his way already to make his residence in Far West, and he wanted to get rid of these others before Joseph Smith would arrive, and then claimed to Joseph, I've gotten rid of the insurgents, and, and now we can move forward because the enemies are gone here, just like you had to do that in Ohio. I found it interesting that W.W. W. Phelps doesn't seem overly bitter through his overt actions at this time. He's trying to peacefully coexist with members of the church and make a living. He can't be the church's printer anymore, so he delivers legal documents. I think he's the postmaster too, isn't he? Here in money as a, uh, the official postmaster uh, appointed appropriately, and also as a community judge that was also appointed by the state of Missouri. So he did have some money-making activities, you're right. Right after Joseph and Sidney and Hiram arrived in Missouri to live, and with the pleading of Thomas Marsh and David Patton, who had taken over uh, in Missouri, 
an injunction was written, a really lengthy one, about a five-page printed one, against the so-called dissidents, and they listed by name a number of them. This included by this time Oliver Cowdery, Lyman Johnson, a member of the Twelve, and the Missouri presidency. And they were told, get out of here. You cannot stay in Missouri, and if you stay, uh, it will be possibly at the harm of your family and life and limb. Well, the other ones fled. Phelps stayed. He had older children than these other people. Apparently, he wanted to uh, make good with the church, and so he said, I'll conform. I'll be all right. And sure enough, within a couple of weeks, he was rebaptized, and a revelation was given for him to go out as an elder and preach the gospel, not to have as much authority as he had once had, but he was reconciled to the church that summer. W.W. Phelps was living in Far West, the city he had helped design and plan and had designated a temple site that was later reaffirmed by Joseph. He was acting as a judge. What did Joseph ask W.W. Phelps to do that made him feel a little squirmish? Joseph Smith was really upset, both from Ohio and now in Missouri, from individuals who had dissented from the church, who were now throwing lawsuits at him and the church in general, asking for money or stays, and, they, and he called them vexatious lawsuits. And he went to the county judge, Phelps, and said, ignore these vexatious lawsuits. And uh, Phelps apparently felt that he didn't have a right legally to just do that. And so I'm sure that made uh, Joseph Smith somewhat squirmish. But we have no indication that uh, Joseph was terribly angry at Phelps at this time because Phelps participated in the Mormon-Missouri War right to the end of that war alongside Joseph Smith. I thought it was interesting, the comment you put in there that W.W. Phelps said, if I don't serve these on you, I don't get paid. Yes. Which was his only livelihood at yes. that point. There's this notorious affidavit that supposedly W.W. Phelps signed that ended up getting Joseph arrested and taken eventually to Liberty Jail. I've seen videos about it. I think that the information you gave in this book counters some of the typical understanding of what went on there. Can you tell us what you found in your research? Thomas Marsh started to fall away in the summer of 1838 over things that he disagreed with Joseph Smith on. It had something to do with his wife and that notorious incident of the milk, but that's not the big thing. Danites this group of warriors who were going to fight in behalf of the First Presidency against dissidents and then were engaged in the Mormon-Missouri War, were doing a lot of extra-legal and bad things. And Marsh could see that this was not right. It was not Christian. And he disagreed with the First Presidency, at least he thinking that they were behind it. And uh, after raids in close to Adam on Diamond in Davies County, by the saints as they raided and gathered booty for themselves in ways that were not appropriate. This really enraged Marsh, and so he went back to Far West, got involved with Thorson Hyde, who was likewise upset, and both of them were apostles. They dashed off to Richmond for safety, prepared this affidavit with legal help, wrote it all completely out, where they laid out all kinds of charges against Joseph Smith wanting to have too much power and be like a Mohammed. And then this affidavit quickly made its way to the governor, Lilburn Boggs, 
and Boggs put together this extermination order that ended up with the siege of Far West and the capitulation and ultimately the arrest of Joseph Smith and some other brethren. And somehow, people have thought that this was Phelps who had done this, whereas the historical record does not bring in Phelps whatsoever. I love it when historians correct misinformation that gets perpetuated. This concludes the first part of our interview. And our second part, we'll take up with Phelps in Nauvoo and Utah. Be sure to check out LDSPerspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.